the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel puts their trust in a magic box instead of God and the cost is devastating. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1. The title of the message is When Religion Replaces Relationship. First Samuel chapter four. The whole theme of the book of First Samuel is lessons from the heart. And we've been looking at lots of different lessons from the heart. And now in chapter four, it's not that it's not going to be another lesson from the heart, but we're going to kind of see a, a result of a heart in that sense. So when we get to chapter four here, we're going to come to a conclusion for Eli and his family as far as all the things that God has been saying up to this point in regard to them. But before we get into that, I, I kind of want to go back to this morning a little bit. If you weren't here, we covered the letter to a revelation that Jesus wrote to Ephesus, where he said that they had left their first love. When you read the accounts of early church pastors just after Revelation was written, about 40, 50 years afterwards, they state that Ephesus listened to the letter. They repented, and they returned to their first love. So here's the question. What would have happened if they didn't? What would that look like? Well, we don't have to wonder because we have our answers in this chapter. Samuel has been a breath of fresh air to the nation of Israel. But the majority of the nation has spiritually deteriorated. God's word's ignored. We've been seeing that. Worship is despised. But the wheels are still turning. Like everything's still happening. Just like with Ephesus, it had been going with them. Religion has replaced relationship. And like the Lord told Ephesus, we're going to see today that the Lord will say, I'll have no part in that. So chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out against the Philistines to battle, and they pitched besides Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people, the soldiers, when they came back into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore, or why, why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us go fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, and when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now, the chapter starts a little weird because it mentions this phrase, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, and you think, how does that fit? Well, it probably doesn't. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts actually have a paragraph marker ending 
after that phrase. So that probably belongs at the end of chapter 3. That being said, I understand why Christian translators put this in chapter 4. Because it serves as a stark contrast to the rest of what happens in this chapter. Here we have Samuel. The word of the Lord through him is coming to the entire nation. Samuel has a heart that loves to serve, a heart that loves to listen to the Lord. He's being molded and shaped by the Lord. And as a result, God has used him to spread his word to his people. But that doesn't mean that the people are sharing in Samuel's heart. We know Eli and his sons certainly didn't share in Samuel's heart. They were resistant. They didn't want to listen to the Lord. Eli and his sons, they refused to repent, even though they'd received their own letter from the Lord, just like Ephesus, confronting their sin and warning them of its consequences. Now, even though Samuel is right where the Lord wants him to be, the rest of the nation has, for the most part, replaced that relationship with the Lord with a horrible counterfeit something called religion. Religion, but aren't we a religion? If you go to a dictionary, you'll find many definitions for religion because it can be used in different ways. For example, the first definition you find in the dictionary for religion is this, the belief in and the worship of a superhuman power or a supernatural power. That's not too bad. Christianity is far more than that, of course, but we do believe in and worship a supernatural power. Religion definition number two in the dictionary says this, a particular system of faith and worship. Ah, now that is a problem because there's no mention of any person that they're worshiping. It just mentions it's a particular system of faith and worship. In other words, you believe certain things and you have rituals that go with it. There's no relationship there. And so when I talk about how Israel replaced relationship with God with religion, that's what I mean when I describe religion as a horrible counterfeit for relationship with God. We talked about how Ephesus had continued all the mechanics of their faith, all the mechanics of their worship, while actually abandoning the one they supposedly did it for. So when that happens, it's not difficult to deceive yourself into thinking Well, it looks the same, so things are the same. This is where Israel finds itself right now. Like Samson, they got up from the bed thinking their strength remained even though their hair is gone. Just like Samson. The opposite of Samuel's mindset. But by this time, Samson is dead. He and Eli judged different parts of Israel for the last 20 years. The influence of their compromise is everywhere. In fact, part of Samson's legacy is the conflict he started with the Philistines. And that conflict has escalated now that Samson is gone. So at the end of verse 1, it says, now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. So Israel initiates this conflict. We don't know why it started, but they go out to fight. They initiate this battle in some sense. They line up to fight. They Philistines, they pitch their army, their tents in Ebenezer, and I'm sorry, Israel does, and the Philistines pitch in Aphek. This is on the coastal region by the Mediterranean Sea where they're fighting here. And it says that the Philistines put themselves in array. They set up ready, they lined up for battle. And when they joined battle, actually that phrase means when they stopped battling, when they came apart from battling, It says, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field 
about 4,000 men. So Israel lost 4,000 men. Now the Philistines, just to remind us, we kind of met them in the book of Judges. But the Philistines were that group that had settled in what we would call modern-day Gaza. They settled in that area. And the Philistines were so entrenched in those coastal areas and then had progressed and taken control of the foothills of the Judean area, the Philistines actually gave their name to the entire land of Canaan, Palestine. That's what Palestine means. It means land of the Philistines, okay? So, again, we see here that they pitch for battle, and then when they discontinue the battle, it's not a slaughter. No ground is gained by the Philistines. Israel could still put up a fight, but this was indeed a Philistine victory. 4,000 men were slain of Israel's soldiers. Now, under Samson, Israel had kept the Philistines at bay. They were frightened. It was a stalemate at worst. So this is the first recorded loss that Israel has had since Samson's death. And that is very bad news. So verse 3, when the people, when the soldiers, they come back into the camp and they realize they've gotten beaten, they've lost 4,000 men, the elders of Israel, these would be the tribal and community leaders. These were not judges like Eli, but they were tribal and community leaders. And it says that they said, wherefore, or why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord defeated us? This is interesting because they recognize that the only way they could lose is if the Lord was against them, if the Lord wasn't for them. See, God had promised the nation of Israel that if they walked in his ways and obeyed his ways, he'd fight for them. So they accurately assessed that Defeat wasn't really a Philistine problem. It was a God problem. How have we offended God that he would turn against us, that he would abandon us, that he wouldn't fight for us, that we would lose? Now, their answer leaves a little bit to be desired here. But when you refuse to recognize you've left your first love, your solution is not to return to the relationship. Your solution is to ramp up your spiritual behavior. Well, let's just get more spiritual. So their answer was, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it comes among us, it, not he, not the Lord, but it, the Ark, may save us out of the hand of our enemies. What's the problem, guys? What what have we done? What have we done wrong? Here's our problem. We left God back at the temple. We tried to fight the Philistines without him. Someone go bring his box here. Now, I joke when I say the box, The Ark of the Covenant was special in that it represented God's heavenly throne room. The cover of the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. So I know that sounds weird for the top of a box, but they called it the Mercy Seat because that was considered to be where the Lord sat. So the whole concept of the Holy of Holies, like remember when Isaiah had that vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, and he says, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up, his train filled the temple, and the smoke filled the temple. That is what the tabernacle, Holy of Holies, was supposed to replicate, the throne of God. And so you've got this box, but the idea is that it's like a seat. It's like a throne for the Lord. And the way it was supposed to work is God's glory was there in the temple on top of the mercy seat, okay? And then the mercy seat, of course, the cover for the Ark of the Covenant, the lid, it had two cherubim on each side signifying or symbolizing the cherubim that we see in Revelation that are constantly declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they have six wings and they cover their face and they cover their body with those wings. And they, it's, just, it's just, that's what it's supposed to be picturing. This idea that it's 
God's presence is in that place. This is his throne on earth in that sense. So while the ark was sacred because of what it represented, it wasn't sacred because it was magical or it had power, Raiders of the Ark nonwithstanding. What made the ark special is that, well, first off, it was dedicated to the Lord, but secondly, because it represented Israel's commitment with God, that their desire to have God's throne be in the midst of their people, that that he would be the one who governs their lives as their king, right? That's the idea. Now, the book of Judges taught us something about that, though, didn't it? That God wasn't most of the Israelis' king, right? It says there was no king in that day, right? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The king's word didn't mean much to his people. And so what had happened is, is that the ark became this magical icon in their eyes rather than a symbol of their relationship with the Lord. It was a cheap substitute, a horrible substitute for a relationship with God. So, verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwells between the cherubims. That's that idea. The Lord dwells between these angels on this throne. So they sent people to go bring it back. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So they send folks back to Shiloh to say, bring the Ark. Shiloh was where the tabernacle had been semi-permanently set up. It was It was normally on the move, but they had set it up in Shiloh for quite a few number of years. It had probably been there for about 150 years at this point. And the sons of Eli, they came with the ark. They didn't just send the ark, they came with it. Now, the Old Testament gives specific procedures for transporting the ark of the covenant. None of them required Hophni and Phinehas to be involved. There was a specific family of Levites who had the responsibility to transport the ark if it ever needed to be transported. And that family was not Hophni and Phinehas' family. So this is just another example of their overreaching. Instead of letting the Levites assigned to this task do their job, they oversee the process. And so they come out to the place where Israel has pitched their armies, verse 5. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again and the earth shook. Now, This concept that they let out a great shout, that's the same exact phrase that was used when Israel marched that last time around Jericho and it mentions they made a great shout and then the walls came down. That's the last time in scripture we see the ark involved in any kind of battle at all. Now, I can tell you what didn't happen. When the people shouted, raised and shoot out from the ark of the covenant and knocked the walls down, I can promise you that, all right? There's nothing unique about the shout other than the fact that God told them to shout. There was nothing unique about having the Ark of the Covenant there or special or powerful or magical, except from the fact that God told them to have the priest march out with the Ark in front. God told them to do these things at Jericho. God never told them to do that again, never in Scripture. This is very presumptuous of the elders And it's an idea, a solution rooted more in superstition than obedient faith like Jericho was. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, now, beloved, and you got to know the time. This is the 1800s, okay? He says, now, beloved, 
When you are worshiping God, and he's a good old-fashioned Baptist, okay? He says, now, beloved, when you are worshiping God, shout if you are filled with holy gladness. If the shout comes from your heart, I would not ask you to restrain it. God forbid that we should judge any man's worship. Oh, man. That's good advice. But he closes with this. But do not be so foolish as to suppose that because there is loud noise, there must also be faith. Just because the earth shook doesn't mean it was the Lord shaking it. And so, verse 6, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what means this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? What happened? And they understood, or literally they found out, that the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And they Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing heretofore. Now, it was very common for armies back then to carry idols of their gods, representations of their gods in front of them on standards or on, carried on pedestals or things like that when they would go into battle. It often would give the soldiers confidence that their God would make them stronger or smarter or faster than their enemies. And, you know, it never hurts to rub the bald guy's head, right? But Israel never did this. Never did this. Even the Philistines knew Israel never did this. Because Israel didn't need a physical representation that they could touch for good luck or pray to for an infusion of strength. The Lord is a living God. He's everywhere, so he's always with us. And the moment I need physical representations of that to make me feel like God is close, it means I've lost something. I've lost an awareness, a closeness with God that doesn't require those things. When I went to Bible college, it was the first time I'd ever really heard modern worship music. I also went to a Baptist church. Nothing wrong with Baptist. Charles Spurgeon's a good guy. Probably my favorite. My church was awesome. But we were probably about 25 years behind the times and choruses. All right? I didn't know this. I, I was a newer believer when I went there and, and got there, and oh, these are cool songs. And then I went out to Bible college, and had my because I played guitar, I had my songbook, and I was like, I don't know any of these songs. I'm like, oh, they must be behind the times. Turned out I was. And so there's all these new songs that I was learning. And at the same time, God was radically transforming my heart as I was learning the word more. And so many of these songs had associations with them of these new things I was learning, these truths that were life-changing for me. And so it was a special time in my life. And I remember a couple semesters later as now God was still teaching me, but it wasn't quite this dynamic, radical, emotional experience for me that I started to think, well, I don't know, am I, is God still working in my life? I don't feel the same things when I sing. I don't have the same reaction as these songs are coming out. What's, what's wrong with me? And I remember the Lord said, well, just in, you know how the Lord does with that still small voice? He said, be really careful that you don't start worshiping worship. Worship me. You don't need to feel anything to worship me. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm slightly emotional. Get excited about things. And so, for me, that was a good lesson. I needed to get my feet on the ground again and go, okay, so even if I don't sense your presence or I don't have these feelings or emotions, that doesn't mean you're not working in my life and it doesn't mean I'm not worshiping you. Well, 
Israel had lost that. They were acting just like the pagans. But here's the the kicker. They thought they were just as spiritual as the day Jericho's walls fell. That's the problem. They, They had all this excitement. They really thought that they were on the same place, in the same place spiritually that Israel was when they came to Jericho. That is the danger of substituting religion for relationship. See, because of the singing, the shouting, the preaching, the ministries, the activities, the outreach, the community influence, an observer might come into a church like Ephesus and be tempted to think, wow, these guys are spiritual. All, while their spiritual days are actually in their past, not their present. All, while the Lord isn't even there. Now, the Philistines did have a good reason to fear the Lord in battle. Verses 8 and 9 show us that. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So be strong, quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that you be not slaves unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. Now, they don't have the facts all right here. They say these are the gods of the Israelites, plural. Now, that makes me sad because... That means Israel hadn't made it clear to those around them they only worshipped one God. That's because it wasn't clear. Idolatry was rampant. We learned that from the book of Judges, right? So they didn't have one God. So that's why they thought this way, that there's lots of gods. As I was reading this, I thought to myself, you know, a good way to evaluate where I'm at spiritually would be to go ask an unbeliever who knows me how they would describe Christianity from looking at my life. That's a good way to figure out where I'm at spiritually. What's your impression of Christianity? Just by looking at me, what would you say about it? Just find an unbeliever that knows you and ask him. You might be blessed. You might realize some things need to change. I remember I was in a conversation with someone, friends of ours from Canada, they were not believers. I remember he pulled me aside one time and he said, Will, he said, you're different than most of the Christians I met. He grew up in church and he had some bad experiences. He goes, you're different than many Christians I've met. He goes, and I won't get into all of it, but he listed all these things. He goes, this is what I hear and see in media and all this kind of stuff. And I, I see that you love people. I see that you believe the word of God. I see that you believe Jesus is the only way. And I thought, after that conversation, I thought, wow, praise the Lord. <laughs> you know, that's good. But that's where Israel had blown it. Philistines didn't have a good, accurate view of who the Lord was because Israel didn't portray one. Now, Even though they didn't have the story quite right, some truth had trickled down to them, though. They knew enough that they didn't want to end up like Egypt. They didn't know correctly where it happened to Egypt, but and they didn't understand it was just one God. But they knew the Lord had done something to Egypt, and they didn't want that to happen to them. And so they said, we got to get this good. We got to fight like we've never fought before. And somebody gives a speech and gets everybody ready to fight for their lives, to fight for their families, to fight for their homes, to fight for their freedom. Now, that's crazy to me. They think they're fighting against the God of Israel and they're going to give it their best shot. They're actually going to try to win. They actually thought if they were courageous enough or tried hard enough or gave it their all enough that they could beat the Lord. Well, I guess it shouldn't surprise me because the world will do this during the great tribulation. When the Lord begins to take back that which is rightfully his, he begins to break the seals of the scroll and lay hold of what is rightfully his. 
they will shake their fist. They'll line up to fight him. So this antichrist mentality, it's been around for a long time. And my challenge to you is this. If you don't compare what's going on in the world and in society with Scripture, you're going to get caught up in it. You'll be deceived. Now, since the Lord wasn't with Israel in this battle, this gumption, this working up the sweat, we got to fight for our lives. That gave the Philistines a serious advantage. They fought like everything depended upon it. And so verse 10 tells us, and the Philistines fought, which actually means they initiated the attack. They said, let's just go for it. And Israel was smitten. They were too busy shouting, I guess. And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. Now that's not just a loss. The phrase that they fled every man to his tent means they fled all the way home. This was an absolute rout. Israel had the ark, but God was gone. And putting your confidence into a nicely decorated wooden box is an absurd notion. And it cost Israel everything. Verse 11, And the ark of God was taken, captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were slain. So just like God told Eli would happen, his sons would die in the same day. God keeps his promises, even the unpleasant ones. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.